Amen. Well, as our children slide out to Transformation Station, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. You can grab one of the Bibles we provide, and the ones we provide, it's page 976. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, looking at verses 11 through 22 today. Um, well, as our kids are sliding, sliding out, my name is John Chastain. I serve as one of the pastors here. And uh, man, it is, isn't it so good to be together today? Amen? Amen. I've already run into a few people saying, man, it's so good to see you. Not just me personally, but just, just to be together again. I mean, who knew that you could have so much fun with snow at home. Has anybody been having any fun? Yeah, I see some hands here. Has anybody jumped out of a second story window? Do we college students? Has anybody? No? Oh, you, seriously? We do have, we, we got a roof jumper here. <laughs> deck jumpers, my kids took to the decks. Um, so, you know, we've, we've had all kind of fun. Anybody got any ski slopes in their front yard? Mountain, we got over here, over here. Okay, I see you there. Who knew what an ice dam was before this year? Who, this is the first time learning what an ice dam is. How many of you still have no clue what an ice dam is? Well, go Google it. You can Google it, Google it later. Um, has anybody, so the, the way you knock these ice dams, has anybody been filling pantyhose up with salt and chunking them up? I see some nodding. Anybody knocking these ice dams off. You may even notice walking in today that, I don't know if the fire truck's out there, but they came around 10 o'clock and said they're cleaning the snow off of the roof right here. So who knows? They may even be knocking some ice dams off of this building right now. And don't you just love shoveling? Are those like the nails on the chalkboard of your heart right now, you, you just see snow and you just like, your heart just starts beating really fast and you get bitterness and anger. But the greatest thing about shoveling is when you've, you've just completely shoveled that last, you know, you've, you, now you've got to lift it like up here to get it over and then you start and you get this joy to get that hot cocoa and you hear this noise, and you turn around and it's another snow plow. And it's coming to plow the Great Wall of China at the end of your driveway to add another 30 minutes or an hour to your task. And can you relate? Yes. And then for you stay-at-home moms, you've been home with your kids for the past month. You really do enjoy spending time with them, and you really do love them. Don't forget that. I just want to encourage you. I know it's been a rough season, um, but we've also had a lot of fun driving in the snow as well, right? So don't you love pulling out of your driveway? So, somebody's described this as like the closest you can get to Russian roulette here in Boston, but you're backing out, and you're just hoping that there's not a person or a plow coming. You just ease your way out, and you just go for it. You can relate to that, I see. Um, or maybe it's playing a game of chicken. You know some of these small roads? Maybe, maybe Somerville, you're heading down and like there's enough room for like a squirrel to get like 
down this road and you're face to face with a car coming straight at you and it's like, who is going to move first? Well, we've had some fun. We've had some frustration. I would say one of my greatest frustrations though out of all of that is that the snow has made it difficult to gather as the church. Has anybody just sensed that with me? I mean, maybe you've gotten really good community with your wife or your kids, but you're longing for their wider community and the church. I've been reading a book lately, The Gospel by Ray Ortland, and he puts it this way. It is only in a church that we are members of Christ and of one another moving forward like a well-coordinated body. It is together that we suffer and thrive. It is together that we worship and grow and serve according to the word of God. That's what your church is. Ground zero for the new kind of community Christ is creating in the world today for the display of his glory. We're looking at Ephesians 2, and just to jog your memory, the last time we gathered, I think it was this year, we looked at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, probably one of the greatest texts to just unpack the gospel, and we heard these words, and you were at one time dead in your trespasses and sins, following the course of the world, following your desires, following the prince of the power of the air, but now God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when when you were dead, he has made us alive. You see, the good news of the gospel is that God is making alive sinners and create, creating them a new creation so that they may know him and enjoy him. But as we move into the text today, we see the gospel is not just concerned with individual redemption. As if God wants to save you alone so that you alone may have a relationship with God. Oftentimes, we think of our Christianity in simply individualistic terms, like what's in it for me? But what we're going to see, that the gospel is about uniting all things in Christ. All nations, all people, everything into one new Humanity. Another writer says this, the death of Jesus is a community creating event. Have you experienced that? The death of Christ is a community creating event. And so what I want us to see, the point of the sermon today as we jump into Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 is this is that we should pursue unity and peace with everyone in the church because the death of Christ turns outsiders into members of the family of God. So let's turn in our text and our Bibles to Ephesians 2, and I'm going to begin reading here 
and verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The first truth that I want us to get today is this, is that we should remember your former exclusion from Christ to cherish your present inclusion in Christ. The, the structure here of these three verses is similar to what we looked at last week. You were dead in your sin, but now God. What he starts off here in verse 11, he says, remember you were. And he says this word, remember, a couple times. He says it in verse 11, and then he comes back to it in verse 12. Remember, we could say this, continue to remember. It's not as if they, he was saying, remember this once and then move on. He was telling them, continue to remember certain things about your past. Just like the last time Paul was challenging them, don't forget you were dead in your sin. You need to remember that for the rest of your life because it reminds you of the marvelous grace of God. In the same way, he says, you Gentiles need to continue to remember certain things and certain realities about your past relationship with God. And so what we have here is Paul addressing the distinction now between Jews and Gentiles, and specifically addressing the Gentiles and their former plight before God. And then he gives God's solution. And so verses 11, 12 basically tell us, you Gentiles previously were separated from Christ. Now, if we're going to understand this, this trajectory of the text here, we've got to just pause for a second and, and make sure we understand the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles did not have the physical mark of circumcision. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant between God and his people. You can go look in Genesis 17 in the covenant that God is making with Abraham. And as a result, the Jews saw the Gentiles as excluded from their social group and from their special relationship with God. And so you've got the Jews that have the circumcision. You've got the Gentiles, probably most of us, who were not Jews and did not have the circumcision. And so the Jews, on the other hand, they had it. And, and look at this language here. Paul says, the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, most, most likely Paul intended a negative connotation here. As if he's reminding this circumcision, yes, but for the majority of you, that's just physical. And what is true circumcision, by the way? It's circumcision of the heart. It's, you, you see, God is not just about an external 
transformation or to look good. He's, he's working from the inside to change your heart, which will then flow out and change your outside. And so do you hear the ethnic tension here? Jews and Gentiles. And so he's asking and he's answering the question, how does the gospel speak in to this? Now, it's hard for us. I mean, but I want you to jump back with me a couple thousand years. I mean, just think of, of, of Israel, of the temple, of the sacrificial system, of the Sabbath, of, of the whole Mosaic law and the culture and life of Israel. And now Jesus is coming out and he's calling people to follow him. And then he's saying, by the way, go proclaim this gospel where? To the world. This isn't just news for Jews. He's saying, go therefore make disciples of the nations. And so we're reading a book here that, of Ephesians where the gospel was taken to Ephesus. We're not reading a letter to the Jews. We're reading to a church that was probably primarily composed of Gentiles. And now they're asking questions like, okay, I'm looking at the Old Testament, which is a part of the Christian scriptures, but I'm not a Jew. What implications does the gospel have to help me understand God and his relationship with his people? So he reminds them to continue to remember where they were and what God has done, which would lead them to great humility and thankfulness in their hearts. So what does he tell them to remember? The first one. Remember this, that you Gentiles were separated from Christ. The reason this one is first is because this is basically the end-all be-all, right? I mean, what it, Ephesians 1.3. Anybody got it? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed you in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing In Christ, if you are separated from Christ, you are separated from every spiritual blessing. And so at the greatest issue Gentiles had is to remind them, you were separated from Christ. They were outside of Christ, and that was an enormous problem. They were separated from the hope of the coming Messiah from the very beginning, as we're going to see in a second, that God had promised a Messiah, a, a Christ, a Savior who would come and bring salvation, and that was given to Israel, though it has cosmic and world implications. He continues, he said, you need to also remember that you are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were on the outside of the blessings that Israel received by virtue of the, of, of the covenant with God. He told them to remember that Gentiles were strangers to the covenants of promise. One of the things that you're going to see as you start reading through the Old Testament is that one of the ways that God initiates redemption and marks out the pathway of his saving purposes is through covenants. He established covenants with his people. So You've got a covenant with Noah, and then Abraham, and then it continues on to Moses, and then David, and then even the promise of a new covenant. And when Jesus is having the Lord's Supper, last supper with his disciples, he says, and, and drink this cup, which is the blood of the 
new covenant that was shed for you. They were strangers to that. Let me just pause here for a second. What, what Paul's reminding us here of is the, the drama of Scripture. And just walk through this briefly, briefly here. I think we got this up here. The six-act drama. The first is reminding us here that in creation, God's kingdom was established. Genesis 1 and 2. There was no Jew Gentile. There was Adam and Eve. Then we go on to Act 2, the fall, where Adam and Eve disobey God. And so there's rebellion in the kingdom. The very fact that we need redemption and salvation is due to sin and rebellion from God. And then we go to Act 3, which is the king chooses Israel, initiating redemption. Why did God choose Israel? Why the Jews even in the first place? He establishes this covenant to show the pathway by which he is going to bring salvation, not just to the Jews, but to all. I mean, we could go back to Genesis 3 and the Proto-Evangelion and the promise that was made that, that he says there's, to, to, the, to the woman, there's going to be enmity between you, the seed of you, and the seed of the, the serpent and and there's going to be this, this offspring that's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. Who was that promise made to? Eve, the mother of all the living. That wasn't made to the Jews. That was made to Eve. And so God chooses Israel to bring about redemption to the world. And so God has, has chosen this people primarily to point to the one that was to come in Act 4. And in Act 4, King Jesus comes and he accomplishes redemption. Jesus is the temple of God. Jesus is the unblemished Lamb of God who lays down his life. And we could go on and on about how Jesus is the fulfillment of, he is the new Israel. And then we come to Act 5, the mission of the church, spreading the news of the king. And that's where we find ourselves here in Ephesians chapter 2. How do we now live in Act 5 in light of Jesus coming, the promised one of Israel, and Jesus is saying here, you need to remember that you were not a part of Israel where God initiated redemption. And because of that, you had no hope and you were without God. Can you imagine what it would be like to be an outsider to the greatest thing on earth and have no means or ability to merit it. Paul wants you to get that. Do you hear him piling these up? Separated from Christ, alienated, no hope and without God. But God. But God. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you weren't just a little ways off the mark, you were way off. You weren't, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. If the most fundamental problem facing the Ephesians was that they were separated from Christ, the gospel removes all of that so that they now might be in Christ. 
And Jesus accomplishes this through the shedding of his blood on the cross. Here's the deal. You don't have to have any history or experience with circumcision, the Torah, animal sacrifices, or the temple. If you have Christ, you have every spiritual blessing. The gospel levels the playing field for both Jews and Gentiles. And ironically, the advantage of the Jews has been overshadowed by their rejection of Christ. So we see here that in Christ, you have now received the blessing and many spiritual blessings. But he continues on in verse 14. And the second truth I want you to get today is this, is that we should pursue unity in the church by displaying the peace that Christ brings. Let's read verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In one sense, this section is an excursus or a digression. And what he's doing is he's showing exactly how Christ overcame the estrangement of verses 11 and 12. I mean, we could have read, you are far off, you've been brought near, and jump down to 19, so then, and continue on. But we've got this 14 through 18 to explain and describe how Christ has brought this peace. And so what we see in, in 14 and 15 is that Jesus brings peace to a divided humanity. And the way he does this is he, it says he tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Hey, let's just walk through this. We've got to do some explaining here. Um, verse 14, it says, he's our peace. He's made us one. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Everybody gets the idea of a wall. In your house, you've got walls that separate rooms. And so what he's saying is there was a dividing wall that was separating Jews and Gentiles, some suggest that what Paul is referring to here is a wall around the temple that separated the outer area where the Gentiles were permitted from the inner, more holy area where Jews were permitted. But the question is, would a Gentile audience in, in Ephesus really know that imagery? It's possible, but more likely, Paul's referring here, the wall is the Jewish law. He's referring to the Mosaic law. That, I mean, I mean, think about it. The main characteristic of Judaism was what? I mean, think of a Jew. They're people who have a lazy day a week, right? I'm just kidding. Like, it's the Sabbath. Oh, those are the people that don't work on the Sabbath, the Mosaic law, or the temple, or the sacrifices. Maybe it's the Day of Atonement. The, the law is what sets them apart from what it means to be a Jew and who the Gentiles 
are. And so this would have led to much hostility. Jews were not supposed to intermarry with the Gentiles. Oftentimes they did not even eat with them for fear of that it would lead to impurity. And so you can just see this not literal wall, but metaphorical wall that has divided these people. And what does the text say? Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do this? He continues on here in verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What does this mean? He abolished this. I got a few verses I want to share with you. Galatians 3.19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Or Romans 10.4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If we were to think about the six-act drama, the whole purpose of God choosing Israel is so that act four would come and Jesus would accomplish redemption. The law was prophetic in the sense that it was a road that led straight to Christ. But when Christ came, he fulfilled it. He is the temple. He is the sacrifice. He is where true rest is found. And so what we have here is, as Paul saying, the main thing that divided Jews and Gentiles, Jesus has fulfilled and he has abolished so that you've got to get the purpose that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So when I go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles, I don't tell them you've got to now come to the temple and offer sacrifices. I don't tell them that now you need to come and get circumcised, right? Jesus, in John 4, he's talking to the Samaritan woman, and they're, they're going back and forth. Where do we worship? Jesus says, we don't worship on that mountain or, or this mountain. We worship in spirit and truth. Worship now is not about a location. It is about what is done in Christ. And so the gospel removes and destroys this wall so that now Jews and Gentiles can worship in this one new humanity and this one true God. So Jesus' death also creates a new and unified humanity. We are now united across all social barriers that once divided them. This is the power of the gospel. But he doesn't just bring a divided humanity together. Jesus brings peace to a humanity divided from God. Look at verse 16. He continues, and he might reconcile us both. So the cross unifies in this one new man, Jews and Gentiles, and then together they are reconciled to God in one body through the cross. Do you hear the unity here? You've got a new man, and then together in one body, they're reconciled to God. Jesus reconciles sinners in one body to God. And this one body that Paul's referring to here is the church universal. All believers at all times and all places. In the church, there are no 
ethnic barriers. Now, let me just take this truth and just fly down here to Redemption Hill. I want you to think about this. N.T. Wright says this. If our churches are still divided in any way along racial or cultural lines, he would say that our gospel, our very grasp of the meaning of Jesus' death is called into question. You guys get that? As a church, we should seek to remove every barrier that hinders anyone in our city from encountering God. If there's going to be a barrier, it ought to be the gospel. But we, we want to remove everything that would hinder anyone. I was at a conference recently, and a guy named Doug um, Doug Logan, he's, a, he's an X-29 pastor in Camden, New Jersey, and he said this, if you have a Skittles neighborhood, your church ought to look like Skittles. What's he getting at? You've probably heard us say, Redemption Hill, we want to be a thumbprint of our community. It's the same thing. You look around at your community. Who's in your community? Your church ought to represent the people living in your city. And if it doesn't, well, then you got to ask questions, why not? Now, we do this on a leadership scale, and hopefully that it can drip down, but I want to ask you individually, are there any barriers in your life between any cultural or ethnic barrier, anything that you're doing that would hinder somebody from embracing and encountering God? Paul is saying here, that those ought to be destroyed, crushed today. What would it look like for Redemption Hill Church to create a gospel culture that sought to remove every barrier that hindered anyone in our city from coming to our church? Let's continue on. Verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The thrust of this text here, I agree with Harold Honer, a New Testament um, scholar, says this. He, it's not we both alike have access, but we both together have access. That's what Paul's getting at. Now you've got this one humanity, they've been reconciled to God, and they both together, not separately, but together have access in the one spirit to the Father. Do you see the Trinity at play here? Very explicit. Through the work of Christ, we're united in one spirit to the Father. Father, Son, Spirit. Jesus is our peace. He restores peace between a divided humanity and he restores peace between humanity and God. And then finally, let's move on to verses 19 through 22. The truth that we need to get here is that we grow in God's family as a temple tightly connected to Christ and other believers. Verse 19. So then, he's drawing implications from everything he's just unpacked. You are no longer strangers and aliens. You used to be, but no more. Who are you? You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You now, in Christ, 
belong to a new family. I want to short share a quote with you by Joseph Hellerman. He wrote a book called When the Church Was a Family, and he compares this to justification. Listen to this. We got it up here. Just as we are justified, which means you're declared righteous with respect to the Father upon our salvation, so also we are familified with respect to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this familification is no less a positional reality than our justification. It would follow from this that just as we need to increasingly actualize the positional reality of our justification in the spiritual formation process, so also should we long to increasingly actualize the positional reality of our familification as we grow into the image and likeness of Christ. Let me just break this down for you. God says, you're declared righteous? How do you actualize that? Now go be righteous, right? We don't, we don't, the gospel doesn't say go be righteous and then you'll, you'll be accepted. The gospel says you are accepted, you're declared righteous, now go live in a way that is righteous. In the same way, he's saying you are positionally a child of God and you have brothers and sisters in Christ. Now how do you actualize that? Go live like a family. You guys follow what he's getting at? What would it look like for the church to live in a way that really looked like a family, the household of God? What do families do? We share stuff with one another. We share our hearts with one another. We stay, embrace the pain, and grow up with one another. When it gets tough in families, you don't leave. Your brothers and sisters, through thick or thin, You're committed. Would you say that describes your relationship with the local church? Today is Covenant Renewal Sunday. Some of you may be asking, hey, why why is membership important? Why why is it even important for members to renew their covenant? I want to just share a few thoughts with you. Um, Ray Orland says this, there is no churchless Christianity in the Bible. We individualistic Americans need to face that. Steve, Steve Timmons and Tim Chester in Total Church say this, the church is not simply a historic convenience, a useful way of organizing discipleship and mission. No, the bride of Christ, Christ complete and perfect, is right at the heart of the climax of salvation. And that's, that's why we've got these verses here. Paul didn't just say, okay, now you're saved, now go live in good works. He moves on and he says, but that's not it. There's now a new body. There is a church and this is important. The church isn't just something that Tanner and I have created and say, well, this will help us make disciples. No, this is something that is at the heart of God as we're gonna see later in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Who did Jesus die for? The church. So the gospel is not just about your individual salvation. It is about what God is doing in the church. So you can't just think simplistically and individualistically about salvation and what it means for you. You've got to think, what are the implications for brothers and sisters in Christ and you to live as a family Member Ray Ortland continues. He says this, you and I are one with all true Christians throughout history. Augustine, Martin Luther, Johann Sebastian Bach, and many other amazing people. That's exciting. But the unity of the church becomes our actual experience in the unity of a church. 
and our local churches, what we share goes beyond our experiences with Christians in general. Being part of a church frees us from a vague idealism and gives us traction for real gospel advance that will matter forever. Look, choosing to live in isolation is easy, but to do what we're seeing here in the text is costly, but it's worth it. Positionally, you're in Christ and you're part of the family of God. What does that look like in reality? Is there any actualization of that in your life? That's why we do membership at Redemption Hill and we describe it as what is membership? It's to join a family. It's to say the way that my membership in the church becomes actual experience is in a church. And this a church is Redemption Hill Church. And we covenant together. And our church covenant, as you're going to see later, basically describes what does it look like for us to live as a family. You belong to a new family and you're now a part of the temple of God as you reflect on the centrality of the temple in Israel. For now, Paul to say this, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The temple now is not in Jerusalem. The temple now is located in Christ. And the church is being built together as we are in Christ to be a part of this new temple. And what was, what was essential? Why did the temple, what was, it so, what was so great about it? It was in the temple that God had promised that he is gonna dwell with his people. That's where the presence of God was. You had the holy of holies, the innermost part of the temple. Where does God dwell now? Verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God dwells in the church through the Spirit of Christ. And the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. The cornerstone is what you lay and the entire rest of the building is guided by the cornerstone. You build future walls and you lay future bricks based on the cornerstone. Jesus is the one by which everything is now measured. And you know what we have a picture here of? It's the great Jewish messianic eschatological fulfillment of a temple where the nations were gathering to worship the one true God. And it is fulfilled in Christ. How do we grow in this temple? Do you see that here? Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together Grows. Do you grow as an individual? You do, but what Paul is saying is you grow together. 
This picture of growth that Paul's laying out is not some Christian that believes in Jesus and go lives in isolation. It's as they are joined together, growing in Christ. So Joseph Hellman continues on and says, people who leave do not grow like trees repeatedly transplanted from soil to soil. These spiritual nomads fail to put down roots and seldom experience lasting and fruitful growth in their lives. Maybe today's the day you decide, I'm gonna stop being a spiritual nomad and I'm gonna plant some roots so that God might grow in me as he grows in others for his glory. As I wrap up, I'm just holding our 2015 vision. And we've got the words love, build, grow. And under grow here, it says this. Sorry, under love. Love one another by active participation in community groups and covenant membership. The church is ground zero for this new community. How are you committed to a local church? You may be visiting today. I want to say to you, if you're visiting today, are you committed to your church? You may need to go back and say, All right, man, what does it look like for me to recommit? You're here today, man. I've been coming to Redemption Hill for a long time. Does it really look, are you committed to a family? The next question, are you striving for peace and unity? Are you living like a gospel family? How can you take steps today to actualize your positional reality as a child of God with brothers and sisters in Christ? This kind of church is beautiful, it's powerful, and it's persuasive. And it's what Medford and Greater Boston needs to see. It starts with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel that you not only have saved us individually, but you have brought us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. God, would you help us to pursue unity and peace? Would you show us ways that we can destroy the barriers in our own lives that are hindering anyone from embracing the gospel of Christ? And would you show us tangible ways that today we can live as gospel family? Even though it may be costly, Spirit, empower us and strengthen us to that end. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.